from the Theology of the Body Institute, this is the Ask Christopher West Podcast. Hi, podcast listeners. Hey, everybody. We're back for another episode. Happy to be so. Yes, and here we are in continuing in our coronavirus lockdown in Pennsylvania, and we are you know, not able to have the events that we scheduled. And I know you are all in that situation as well. We had quite a lineup of fabulous events all over the country and internationally that we had to reschedule. That's right. And we look forward to the time when we can, you know, those, those can happen. But in the meantime, there's a really exciting virtual Theology of the Body Conference that um, we're excited to tell you a little bit about. Coming up on Mother's Day weekend, and we have an amazing lineup of speakers. Uh, Wendy West is going to be one of the speakers. May I just say, you podcast listeners are the reason. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was not a speaker. Well, then. you were with me when we, you know, years ago. It was we so would... long ago, I don't think my brain even remembers that. I agreed to be on our podcast, and it's been a rewarding experience. And your, the listeners have really encouraged me that somehow they appreciate that I am sharing some thoughts. And so tell, tell everybody what your talk's going to be on, Wendy. Uh, yes. So I was asked to give a talk at this conference, as there are many. Many wonderful speakers. And oh, well, I do let me not just let me go down the list here. We as have, one of the wonderful ones. Here's a few, oh, hey, 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 hey. <laughs> go ahead. Who, okay, tell here's, us. And, and then I want to hear what okay. I want you to tell everybody what you're talking about. Okay. Here's some of the speakers we have. Uh, of course, I will be there. You will be there. Jeff Cavins will be there. Janet Smith, uh, Mikhail Waldstein, one of the great scholars in the world on John Paul II's teaching, uh, Jason Everett, Chris Stefanik, Father Tom Loya, Katrina Zeno. Uh, we are. Bill Dunahy, of course, from the TOB Institute, Dr. Bob Schutz, Damon Owens, Rose Sweet, Brian Butler, and gosh, we have probably another 30 or so speakers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have quite the lineup. And here's the deal. They're recording their talks. You're going to get to kind of sit with them in their living rooms and on their comfy couches and learn from them on this virtual conference. It's free. Did I say that already? It's free. Yeah. You can sign up for free for the weekend of May 8th through the 10th, Mother's Day weekend. There is a premium pass uh, if you want to have access to the talks beyond that and a lot of bonus stuff. But Wendy, tell people about your talk. Yeah, I am excited um, to share something. I, I know that for me, I love a balance of teaching and then story. And so my talk is going to be more, much more just a story, a story about us in our marriage and ways that we experienced real significant healing during a particular time in our marriage. So I'm excited to tell that story to our listeners. Okay, I'm going to say a little bit more about that, if you don't mind. Because okay. lots of people have heard me tell my version of the story, and people have said, well, I want to hear what Wendy's take is on all this stuff that you went through. So, that's right. they're finally going to get to it's hear Wendy's, story. Wendy's version of the story, there so you, you don't want to miss that. And uh, yeah, it's going to be, the, the, the whole coronavirus thing has really compelled people like me and others in ministry to to be creative and continuing to reach people, and... Uh, we already have several thousand people signed up for it. 
the more the merrier in this format. It's going to be a, a great experience. So check it out. The link is there in the show notes, tobvirtualconference.com. I also wanted to share, before we jump into a question, I read a, a great article in the National Catholic Register today from an old friend of mine, Mary Healy, and she just said something that I, I thought I wanted to pass along here. She's talking about how this coronavirus time is a wake-up call for us to return to our faith and go deeper with the Lord. And she made this interesting connection from an Old Testament story. This is in Second Chronicles. She says, in the Old Testament, God decreed that Judah would go into exile for a time corresponding to all the Sabbaths they had broken until the land has retrieved its lost Sabbaths. Hmm. So now, she says, perhaps our frenetic society is retrieving its lost Sabbaths. I like that thought. Mm -hmm. And I can certainly attest that the pause button that has been pushed has compelled me to, yeah, have more of a Sabbath mentality, if you will, and listen for the Lord more attentively and let go of the things that aren't important. So, I think she also kind of just brings up the question of does God intentionally will this kind of situation or simply permit that? Yes, I, it's it's more his permissive. She's, she's, the question is, is this a, a punishment from God? Right. Is this pandemic mm-hmm. a punishment from God? And she talks about the plagues and pestilence of the Old Testament and, and such. And is there, you know, some people are out there saying this is God's punishment. Well, maybe, maybe, uh, but what is punishment? I mean, punishment is really just allowing us to experience the the natural consequences of our own actions. Mm. Um, And God permits that because he loves us. There are consequences. You know, if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. God does not want us to die. It's not like, I will kill you. I will slay. Mm. It's rather, that's the natural consequence of that behavior. Mm -hmm. There are consequences to a culture that idolizes money. There are consequences to a culture that idolizes sex. There are consequences to a culture that idolizes entertainment and sports. And and these things, we're being stripped of these things that we idolize. And, and at a minimum, God, it's clearly God's allowing it because if he wasn't allowing it, it wouldn't be happening. Right. So this is his permissive will to teach us something. So I'm really trying to listen, Lord, what are you trying to teach us mm-hmm. through your permissive will in allowing this? Yes. And that's, I think that's important. So anyway, look that article up. Uh, if you're a National Catholic Register reader, it's worth reading. Maybe you can even get, I imagine you can get it online as well. Yes, through EWTN. That's right, through EWTN. Mm-hmm. So why don't we jump to our questions? Okay. Let's start with Katie. Hey, Katie. Katie says, thank you for sharing your gift with us. You are welcome. My husband divorced me I'm a few so years sorry. ago, uh. and I've been going through the petition for invalidity. This has been going on for years, and I'm still waiting to hear the findings of the tribunal. I always considered my vocation to be marriage, and I'm praying for peace to accept God's will. What advice could you give? I know there are so many in this position, and it can be a very difficult, lonely path. Bless you, dear sister. I, I feel something of your ache just having Wendy read your words. And there's no easy answer to that deep cry of your heart. Why does the Lord allow these things? You felt called to marriage and 
entered this union and things obviously did not go as you hoped, first I would I would encourage you to not be afraid of the why of the question of the the pain of that question. The Lord Himself on the cross entered into the depth of the human why when he said, my God, my God, why, why, why have you abandoned me? There's a sacredness to that why. There's a sacredness to that cry. You are united with the Lord in his agony. And the more we are willing to enter into that agony without pietizing it, without watering it down in any way, but just feel the rawness of the real human cry. We are deeply united with Jesus in that cry. And I also want to affirm, Katie, that you are called to marriage. You are. And I want to invite you to go deeper with that call and what that means. Because the real call to marriage is the call to the marriage of the Lamb. Really and truly, you have a heavenly bridegroom. And the best that a marriage on planet Earth can be, I've said this so many times on this podcast, but it bears repeating, the best that an earthly marriage can be is just a little glimmer, just a little taste of the eternal marriage. And I would even suggest that in the pain that you are going through in having your husband leave you, in the pain that you are going through in crawling into bed by yourself, there is an invitation to a deeper intimacy with the crucified Christ, with the abandoned Christ. And paradoxically, that experience of abandonment can become and does become as we enter more deeply into it an experience of profound communion with Christ, the bridegroom. Maybe the marriage that you're invited to realize that you are called to is the ultimate marriage, the marriage with Jesus, which is very real. It's not less real than earthly marriage. It's more real. The things that last forever are the things that are most real. The things that pass away are just the shadows. And marriage itself, as St. Paul says, marriage is part of the form of this world that is passing away. So I, I invite you to enter in more deeply to that ultimate call and to realize how real it is. And I want to quote here from Pope Benedict XVI, and then Wendy, I'm, I'm sure you have some heartfelt thoughts to share with Katie. Here's the, the line from Pope Benedict XVI that I was thinking of. This comes from a book, a pre-papal book of his called Introduction to Christianity, which I first studied, oh gosh, 25 years ago when I was in graduate school. And in there, he talks about when we say, I believe in the creed, what we're really saying is I believe that, th that this world, this physical, visible, tangible world we live in right now is only a sign of a much greater reality. 
And to say, I believe, to say the creed with faith is to say, I believe that what I cannot see is more real than what I can see, and that I'm doing a disservice to myself if I'm seeking happiness in the things of this world. This world is passing. This world is not something in which we can place our security. This is one of the great lessons that we're being forced to learn during this pandemic. But the other world, the other world to which we are invited lasts forever. Jesus put it this way, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And he spoke of the treasure that moth cannot destroy, that lasts forever, that nothing can take away from us. The conversion, and this is again from from Pope Benedict XVI or Cardinal Ratzinger. Actually, I don't think he was a cardinal just yet when he wrote this book, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, He says that conversion itself, the very reality of Christian conversion, means that we are, we're staking our claim, if you will, in the invisible reality, that we are pinning all of our hopes in that which we cannot see with our physical eyes, because we know by faith that that is more real than what we can see with our physical eyes. And then he says, because because we, we do not cease, cease to have a certain pull, like a gravitational pull towards the visible and the tangible, we need this conversion to be renewed every day. And speaking from experience, I can say, yes, I need that. I feel that gravitational pull towards the visible. I feel that gravitational pull towards the things of this earth in which to base my, my security and my peace and so I recognize every day I need to stake my claim and, and make an act of faith. Lord, I believe, I believe that your love, your reality, that this other world that I cannot see with my eyes is more real than the world I can see with my eyes. And I'm, I'm putting everything on that reality. That's the call to conversion And Katie, I would suggest with reverence for what you're going through, with reverence for what you're suffering, uh, that sacred suffering, that that sacred suffering itself is an invitation to that deeper conversion. I agree with all that you're sharing and uh, remembering some things that my mom talked about having lost her husband through he died of cancer. And although... It's a different... That there. was your dad, just to, so everybody knows that. <laughs> it's not like she had some other husband. <laughs> Thanks for clearing yeah, just that wa- up. I just, wanted to be- I just was thinking of her as a married woman. That's I know, I was- but I'm thinking of you because it okay. still hangs my heart that you lost your dad when Thank you were a girl. You. Thank you. But there were experiences she shared, and many I'm sure that she didn't, of letting the Lord know the longings of her heart in her unsought-for singleness, her her not being married, even though that was not what she wished, and ways that she felt the Lord answered her in unexpected and beautiful ways, answered those um, longings of her heart for love and companionship. And so, I'm, I'm thinking of that, just that interplay of not hearing anything that Christopher is saying as you shouldn't feel what you feel 
he's not saying that. No, I'm and not saying that. You, it's a sacred ache. That's right. So to with honesty about how it really feels, talking, really deepening that personal relationship with the Lord through that process can only bear good fruit in your life. And and he wants to show himself to you. He wants to reveal himself. Even as Christopher was talking about the invisible world, it, it doesn't mean that it doesn't penetrate, that yes. that love from him doesn't penetrate into our daily lives. It, it does. It's called um, incarnation. That's right. The invisible made visible. Right. Woohoo! So that's my encouragement to you, Katie. And also, I just want you to know that we will be praying for you. And as you said, many people in this lonely and difficult process, there people that we know personally going through similar things and it is heartbreaking at times and that is not an easy journey so we're lifting you up that you would experience that breaking through of the lord into your into your ache into your heart two scriptures come to my mind katie one is pour out your heart to the lord that's from the psalms and then another line is the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. Mm -hmm. There's deep intimacy with Jesus to be found. We bless you. We we will be lifting you up in prayer, Katie. We hope that what we've shared is, is somewhat helpful to your heart. Yes. The next question is from Grace. Hi, Grace. Grace asks, If God did not create individuals to be gay, but it is rather a result of the fall, then what about hermaphrodites? Is it appropriate to say that God did not necessarily, quote, create them that way, but rather their condition is another result of man's sin? Thank you, Grace, for that question. I would refer you to a more extensive answer that I give to these very delicate, difficult questions in my book, Good News About Sex and Marriage, and we'll put a link in the show notes for that. But first, I want to just clarify a few things for those who are listening and may not have the context in which Grace is writing. So, it's, it's critical in our understanding of the world to recognize that something in the world as we know it today, something is off. There's probably no more readily observable teaching of Christianity than the idea that the world has fallen We all know this. We experience this day to day. Things are not as they should be. We feel this. We feel it deeply interiorly that something is off. The injustices we experience, the sufferings we experience, the real difficulty of being human. There's a collective cry in the human race that recognizes something is wrong with the way the world is in its current state. And as people of faith, we recognize that we have to speak with a proper reverence towards the mystery of it, that the world has fallen. We can't just kind of like snap our fingers. Oh, yeah, the world's fallen. Yeah, that explains this and that explains that. And everything makes sense now that I know the world's fallen. No, the church speaks of original sin as a mystery. And we have to approach it with a, a humility that... We don't know what that exactly means, but the point is this. There was an original plan in which there was harmony, there was peace, there was the fullness of all that is true, good, and beautiful in human life, but through an act of 
disobeying the Lord, which was really a lack of trust in his goodness, the world fell. And the whole world fell. Uh, we as human beings are the representative, the, the mouthpiece, if you will, of the whole created order. And the whole created order suffered as a result of human beings' disobedience to God, our rejection of his love, our lack of trust in his goodness. And this goes right down to the biological reality. Our, our biology was affected by the fall. Our sexuality was affected by the fall. Our desires and our inclinations were affected by the fall. So, in the beginning, he made them male and female and called the two to become one flesh. Before the world was a fallen world, human sexuality had a very clear orientation and design. Male was made for female. Female was made for male. It's very clear just by looking at a male body, a female body, what the design is. If God is real and he designed human sexuality, the design is clear. A man's body is not made for a man's body. A woman's body is not made for sexual union with a woman's body. But a man's body is made for sexual union with a woman's body, and a woman's body is made for sexual union with a man's body. We literally have the sexual organs that allow us to recognize we are organized for each other. We are quite literally organized for sexual union. And when we understand what sexual union really is, it's the union of the sexes. It's the union of the sexes afforded by sexual organs. Uh, we can then recognize that it really is impossible for two men to have a sexual union because it's impossible for them to unite their sexual organs with each other. It's really impossible for two women to have sexual union because it's impossible for them to unite their sexual organs with each other. Uh, none of this is said to scold anybody, shame anybody, condemn anybody. It's said to turn the lights on to recognize how this fallen world impacts us. So it's not a blame game because we're all fallen. We are all fallen and we are all in need of sexual healing and redemption. Now, all that is background information for those who might have heard Grace's question, uh, not with the context that it she seems she's already bringing to it. But the, the, then the question comes up, well, what about hermaphrodites? Again, we have to recognize even the biological level is affected by what we call the fall or what we call original sin. This does not mean that those who are born with birth defects, and here we can just include, you know, ambiguous genitalia or hermaphroditism, if that's the right word. We can include that in the context of recognizing some people are born blind. Some people are born deaf. Some people are born without limbs. We can recognize and we should recognize this is not God's intention. It is not correct to say God created this person this way or God wanted this person to be this way. This is a result of, we were talking about this earlier in the article I was reading. Yeah, I was just thinking about that. Yeah, God's permissive mm -hmm. will. He allows these things but he does not directly intend these things. These are correctly called birth defects, mm -hmm. right? So, 
The fact that people are born blind does not mean that there is not still some human nature that we can recognize that we're meant to be able to see. This is a tragedy that this person doesn't see. Mm. Um, the same with, with ambiguous genitalia. The fact that some people are born with ambiguous genitalia does not therefore erase the pattern of human nature and lead us to conclude there's some third or fourth or fifth or, multi, you know, in our world, <laughs> we've multiplied it in infinitely um, how many genders there could be in our thinking today, which is very confused. All of that confusion goes back to the fact that we have normalized the fallen, broken world. And, and when we say things like, God made me this way, we are not taking into account that we live in a fallen world. And here Jesus's words are critical. In the beginning, Jesus says, it was not so. In the beginning, it was not so. The blueprint for God's creation is found in the beginning before sin. Then the big question comes, why does God allow these things? And that's a conundrum. That's a mystery. But we do have clues that Jesus gives us. For example, the blind man, one of the stories in the gospel of, of a blind man, they're always looking for, you know, why was this guy blind? Whose sin is responsible for this blindness? Was it his sin? Was it his parents' sin? And Jesus said, no, he's not more of a sinner. His parents aren't more of a sinner. This is not a punishment for their sin. He said, this was allowed so that the glory of God could be revealed. That is our astounding hope. And again, we're back to the point that I was making to Katie about this other world that is more real. Our hope in this other world is not just the hope of some spiritual healing. It's a hope in the resurrection of our bodies. And in the resurrection of our bodies where we must place all our hope, Scripture says the blind will see, the deaf will hear, the lame will leap, and we can add to that list, those with ambiguous genitalia will no longer have ambiguous genitalia. They will be seen for the man or the woman that God had always intended them to be. Mm. Yeah, that's very powerful and, and clear. And I think maybe as we encounter these situations that cause us to feel, I think, a compassion for those who are suffering with especially challenging circumstances, that experience within our own lives of every difficulty truly being an opportunity to know the Lord. If we can experience that, if we can invite Him in to our own difficulties, it can enable us to recognize that no difficulty is too hard for the Lord to bring good out of. Yes. And not every heart maybe opens to that grace. And there may be people who are angry and um, who maybe feel offended by the challenge that the gospel brings. And so that can cause us to withdraw and think, I, I, don't, I don't know what you're feeling. That's too much for me. So I think sometimes we can um, be afraid or um, just think this is not my place to speak. But when we, when we do invite the Lord into our own circumstances yes. and let that, the challenge of some of the most difficult things in our own lives 
draw us closer to the Lord. It becomes real that there's no challenge in anyone's life that could keep them, truly keep them from knowing the love of the Lord and His ultimate plan for every human being to be united with Him in love. So, yes, some lives are extremely challenging, and we have compassion and we pray and we trust, but it doesn't cause us to question what that God is doing something awesome in every human life, and He's right there knocking at the door, waiting for the next opportunity to just come in and bring the good news into the hearts that recognize my ache is truly for this love and this life that you are offering. I'd like to share one more thought about these bodily manifestations of our broken world. You know, whether you're you're born blind or deaf or missing limbs or with ambiguous genitalia or whatever the situation might be. There's a mystery here, but sin is after the body. Uh, The enemy, the father of lies, the one who tempted the human race in the beginning to disobey God, to, to not trust God. He's always after the body. He hates our body. Satan fell out of envy. And what does he envy? He envies what he doesn't have. He's a fallen angel. What do angels, what don't they have that we have? Bodies. We are called to a bodily participation in the ecstasy and bliss of the Trinity. And the human body has been under a violent attack from a formidable foe. The enemy has a diabolic fury aimed at the human body. And we see this writ large in the scourging of Christ, the crowning with thorns, the, the crucifixion, the, the all-out attack on the human body. Jesus absorbed into his body. And this means whatever sufferings we experience in our bodies, this is an occasion of a profound intimacy with Jesus. And I would invite all the listeners, not just those who might have particular bodily sufferings, maybe you're in great health and praise God for that. But I'd invite you to, to look for the signs of Jesus's presence in the bodily sufferings of others. Uh, This is something that has scared me, to be quite honest. For a time in my life, and and I still wrestle with it, but I I wouldn't know how to do if I was with a person who was particularly suffering bodily, someone with a handicap or someone missing a limb or someone who had some bodily disfiguration. I, I wouldn't know what to do. I would be very uncomfortable and would maybe even avoid that person. But I found myself in more recent years, in my adult, my more recent adult life, being quite drawn to those with real bodily sufferings because I have, if I can put it this way, I have sensed the fragrance of Jesus. I don't know how, why it comes to me that way to say it, but I don't know quite mm-hmm. how else to say it. The fragrance of Jesus, like a certain incense, a certain presence of the suffering Christ in the bodily sufferings of others. And that has been quite an eye-opening experience for me. These people who have suffered in a particular way bodily, 
they will also be glorified in a particular way bodily. And I cannot wait to rejoice in the joy of beholding the glorified bodies of all those who have suffered particularly in this life with bodily uh, disfigurations or birth defects. And that's real. That is real to me. This is what our faith proclaims in, wow, the resurrection of the body is a is something we need to spend a lot more time contemplating. It will breathe hope into these painful places mm-hmm. and painful questions. A question from a listener named Cecilia. She says, I'm fascinated by the four temperaments. Learning about them has greatly helped my self-awareness and relationships. Do you have a perspective on this? Could you discuss why it is important in marriage to understand your and your spouse's temperament? Well, Cecilia, you've come to the right place here. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> my wife, Wendy, over here, let me just say, has spent a good amount of time entering into this and has found it very helpful. I, I'll just say this first, and then, Wendy, I know you're going to have much more to say on this one than I do. I have benefited through you, Wendy, mm-hmm. in your knowledge of these temperaments, but I, for the life of me, still cannot connect the names sanguine or melancholic or uh, what's the other one? Phlegmatic. Phlegmatic and... Uh, uh, Yeah, choleric. Choleric. Okay, (laughs) so I've read up on what they all mean and I, I say, oh yeah, I see this in this person. I see this in me. I see this in you, Wendy. I see this in our kids. It. I find it a helpful thing, but I can never connect the explanation of what such and such is with the word phlegmatic or the word <laughs> melancholic or saying, I just, I don't make the connection. So that information kind of goes in one ear and out the other. Although in principle, I think this is very illuminating and very helpful, but you know what I am. What am I? <laughs> I, I always forget what I am. What am I? You're kind of a strong melancholy and choleric. <laughs> melancholic choleric. <laughs> And who are you? What are you? Phlegmatic and melancholy. And what is what, and what's the combination that that creates? <laughs> are but, we in trouble? Uh, yes, no, aren't we all? <laughs> well, I'll say this. I I think um it, many people probably don't know what we're talking about here, the four temperaments. It's an ancient teaching that goes back to the ancient Greeks, I believe, in their understanding of basically personalities, although some people would say your temperament, kind of like your underlying um, motivations or dispositions are not the same as your personality, meaning like maybe your personality is more impacted by your history or your own choices and efforts in a way that the underlying temperament is sort of more like just inborn. So I don't, I'm not an expert on this either. Before encountering that Greek system of the four temperaments, I think I had encountered some other different ways of sort of classifying or describing different type of people. Like, um, aren't these Greek terms? They're they're based on yeah bodily like fluids. bodily fluids and yeah. stuff like phlegmatic, like <laughs> phlegm, right? Isn't that based on phlegm and 
Sang- hey, hey, no. Sanguine is, this is really based helpful? on blood. Well, well, there's a theology of the body <laughs> oh, connection I here. Gotcha. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the throat clearing wasn't really speaking to me. <laughs> well, I'm talking to this phlegm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm phlegm- phlegmatic. Am I phlegmatic? Not at no, all. I'm not. No. <laughs> I, see, I can't remember what they all mean. But anyway, the point uh, is this that the Greeks used these bodily fluids as symbols of these different temperaments, which is right to the point of theology of the body, that the physical is a sign of the spiritual. Okay. That's the point That's I wanted to make. Awesome. That's awesome. I'm with you. Very okay. good. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, enough. Um, yeah, other ways of describing different personalities like um, Myers Briggs testing, or I encountered something called the Enneagram, which is like these nine different ways of kind of what motivates a person and some people say that's kind of new agey uh-huh. enneagram and and these various catholics think it's uh we should steer clear of that and i i don't i haven't read up enough to know if that's the Actually, case or not but I, I i don't know i did encounter it through a catholic person and recently i've been hearing about it from protestant friends i don't know if there's someone promoting that way of understanding you know, it can help people to find their place in the body of Christ is one of the things that it can do. I know another system I kind of came across was something called motivational gifts. Mm. So, it was looking at sort of personal charism. So, all of these are different ways of trying to understand who am I? What's my place in the body of Christ? How does who I am um, impact my relationships? How does who my husband is, who my child is, impact my relating with that person? So, in that way, I think any number of different ways of coming to greater self-knowledge can be really helpful to people. And I, I don't know that, you know, the four temperaments is the answer for everyone. It's obviously not that helpful to you, which I always no, kind no, of find the a concepts, funny. I mean, the, the, the <laughs> truths behind the concepts are helpful. Yes, but the words that they use <laughs> yeah, don't help me. It doesn't work. Someday someone's going to really... It just really doesn't <laughs> stick. It doesn't, it, clearly, it, I still don't know. What am I? Melon? Well, okay. I'm Here's a, the funny thing is that... I'm you a know, chronic melon. Is that what I am? <laughs> You're making me laugh. Okay. The thing is that nobody perfectly fits any of these categories. There can't really be just... Right. A perfect description of four different types of people in the world, and that's it. You know, it certainly isn't possible. But we can relate to aspects of it, and it can help us understand ourselves. And I think when I look back on our earlier um, struggles in our earlier relationship, at least for me, coming to understand some things about temperaments was a huge help in in understanding why we've had conflicts that we've had. So, I'll just share about that real mm-hmm. briefly with Cecilia. One of the things is that, you know, in, if you use this uh, Greek formulation, you have the most high energy temperament in you, the choleric temperament, that this man does not need any caffeine. He behaves like a person who drinks caffeine all day in the sense that he works <laughs> and works and works and works and hardly ever stops to eat. He's energetic, go-do person. And I have this phlegmatic side, which is the opposite, where the energy is really lacking. That basic work feels a bit burdensome. <laughs> it's a challenge. You know, not that you're not challenged by work, but it's your, it's your instinct is to go mm-hmm. and do it. That is you know? true. And that's just 
not my so but but we didn't understand that I didn't even know that about myself honestly you know to be able to tell someone else this is true of me I was probably young enough thinking that at the time that we got married that I probably had just as much energy as anyone else you know I it took time for me to start to recognize this about myself and um and that has been very helpful to to yes. see how those differences in us yeah. have caused conflict or yeah been or, yeah difficult for various reasons mm-hmm. and I think you know as we both have that melancholy which is this instinct to want to do things right and, and in a way it brought us together in that you know the rightness in our sense of the rightness of God's vision for marriage was very much something that brought Absolutely. us together and we agree and sense that equally but the rightness of the right way to load the dishwasher is not something <laughs> <laughs> but we both want to do it right. We both have that, but it's a different definition. Yes. yes. Uh, so you know, it's We're still good. Working on that. It's good. <laughs> it's good to understand these things. And I think, for me, you have that aspect of the the melancholic, which is kind of don't mess with my stuff. Like I put things in order in a way that works for me, and just respect that. You know, a certain, this is m- how I want things and don't mess it up. And I, You can violate me in a major way and I will readily forgive you. But if you don't put my wrench back in the toolbox from <laughs> which you took it. Right. So this is just an aspect of who you are that I did not really understand. And I was causing you stress and distress and causing you to feel <laughs> unloved, totally unten- unintentionally, because I just didn't have that sensitivity right, to that, right. how important that is to We're your different. personality We're different, and temperament. And our differences are meant to unite us and enrich us That's and enlarge true. us. That's true. But We're still learning what, right. how, to, how to live that out. So, I encourage anybody who has no clue what we're talking about. There is a book that I've found particularly helpful, just say Personality Plus for Couples by Florence Litauer, um, which is based on this concept of the four temperaments. She's a Protestant author, and she's kind of humorous and it sort of exaggerates things, but it, it makes it an easier read than maybe a more, you know, studious version of the temperaments. Reading her examples has, has helped me, so I share that with you. And um, But in any case, the deeper issue at hand, and, and maybe somebody might think of the love languages as another way of conceptualizing mm-hmm. and understanding our differences. Just self-knowledge and knowledge of the people we most want to love, and maybe some knowledge of the people who are hard for us to love, is just helpful. Yeah. It just answers questions, and it causes us not to repeat repeat mistakes that we didn't even know were mistakes because it didn't make sense from our frame of reference. So, to understand others better, I think, is probably the key of all of these different things. I hope that's helpful to you, Cecilia. I have a public confession to make, Wendy. Oh, my goodness. I'm going to admit that the way you load the dishwasher gets dishes more clean. But the way I load the dishwasher... Tell me about that. ...allows <laughs> for what? You tell the world. <laughs> way more dishes get in exactly. there. Exactly. More dishes <laughs> no get in space. there. No wasted space. That's right. So if you want clean dishes, load it your way, which is kind of what the dishwasher's for. I'm not even going to say that. Not going to go there. I admit there. it. I admit it. But there's... <laughs> <laughs> but still feels good. It still feels good to get more in there. I'm just saying. 
That's all I have to say about that. <laughs> so right. I want to remind everybody again, please go to, what is the website? tobvirtualconference.com. tobvirtual.com. Virtual.conference.com? Dot conference? No. No. tobvirtualconference.com. Please sign up for our free, yes, it is free, over Mother's Day weekend, May 8th to the 10th, free online conference. We have such a great lineup of speakers. Uh, check out all the speakers we have. Yeah, it's going to be uh, a great event, which is a way to continue deepening your knowledge of the church's vision here. And uh, it's free to you guys for the weekend of May 8th to the 10th. If you want to get the premium pass, you get some bonus stuff and you get to not just have to watch all the talks over that weekend, but you get, you know, extended access. Anyway, learn more. The link is there. Uh, bless you guys. Till next time. Remember, you are a gift. Become what you are. Ask Christopher West comes to you from the Theology of the Body Institute with music by Mike Mangione and production by Sounder and Key. Christopher and Wendy hope the information presented is helpful to you, but remind you that they are not licensed counselors. If you're going through serious difficulty, you can find a list of trusted counselors and psychologists in the show notes. Mm-hmm.